Would you grab your Bibles? We'll pick up where we left off, 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to make our way chapter by chapter through the book of Kings, 1 Kings and then 2 Kings. We'll ask the Lord's blessing now and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, we always like to just bow in your presence and, and acknowledge Jesus' wonderful words that without him we could do nothing. So Jesus, Lord Jesus, please touch our understanding, enable us to, be, um, to grasp these spiritual truths and put them into practice and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so when we last were together, uh, King David is in bed, sick and dying. It's a sad scene. And just for context, you'll recall that Adonijah, his power-hungry boy, couldn't wait to get his uh, grasping hands on the scepter uh, with the help of a couple traitors who were in David's administration. And together, they round up all the king's sons and hundreds of important men in Israel, and they make a bid for the throne. And they're singing and having a party, long live Adonijah. The, organ, the inauguration party, I should say, was already in full swing with only one problem. God didn't want Adonijah to be king. He wanted Solomon to be king. So thanks to a fiery prophet named Nathan and the courage and cooperation of Bathsheba, this inauguration party is short-lived. And you recall last week uh, that David rallied, the Holy Spirit kind of helped him to rally there in bed, and he uh, publicly installed the rightful heir, Solomon, uh, his fourth-born son. And so at David's request, they took Solomon and put him on his royal steed and paraded him around Jerusalem, and they were singing, Long Live King Solomon, and it excited all of Jerusalem. And uh, there was a big, loud celebration, a trumpet sounded, and the city was exploding with all of this celebration. And which interrupted the party of the posers, all right? And so they didn't take that very well. The lights came on at the party, and the usurper, Adonijah, Joab, Abiathar, and the rest of the guys who, was, uh, who were interested in overthrowing David uh, kind of dispersed like the cockroaches that they are. Sorry. <laughs> now, you want to know how I feel about them? I'll tell you. Oh, I just did. Never mind. Okay, so the attempted coup is thwarted. So who's on the throne now? Solomon's on the throne, but David is alive, uh, barely, in bed. So they're co-regents for the moment. They are reigning together, father and son. Where did bad boy half-brother Adonijah go? Well, he knew he could end up dead, so he went to the sanctuary and, and pled for amnesty, hanging on to the altar, the horns, the corners of the altar. And uh, his half-brother Solomon said, I'm going to be merciful. You deserve to die, but you know what? I'm going to show you mercy. And he kind of just kind of put him on a kind of parole. Behave yourself and live. Not a hair on your head will be harmed. And we're going to see whether or not he could behave himself tonight. All right. 
Now, with the right son on the throne, it's time for King David to, to uh, give last advice, his very last words to uh, his heir, his son, Solomon, before he dies. Verse 1. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I am about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, show yourself a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways, keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements, as written in the law of Moses. And that generally means the first five books of our Old Testament there so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me, saying, if your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So let's pause there. If you're taking notes, David's last words. David's last words. Now in Acts chapter 13... Uh, we have the statement that David served his own generation, doing God's will in his own generation, and now we see that he is uh, ending that generation, and he's concerned for Solomon and the future generation. And uh, his words are going to really encapsulate what son Solomon will one day write in Proverbs chapter 4. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. And we do that by walking with God and obeying his commands. Now, another uh, paraphrase of that proverb is take care of your inner soul because from there your whole life issues forth. And so David's deathbed advice kind of falls into two parts. Verses two through four, he talks about Solomon's soul, the personal life, the spiritual comes before verses five through nine, where he talks about the kingdom, some political and practical advice. So first, as it makes a lot of sense, he talks about the soul and spiritual issues. Now, I was thinking how nice and how fortunate David was to have a chance to say something at the end of his life. A lot of people don't get that opportunity. Um, most people would like to say something, to leave uh, a legacy of sorts to whoever's gathered around. And I, I was thinking, what would, what would you say? What would I say? If you knew you had a week to live, and you had to compose something to say, and you picture the faces, what would you say? Now, somebody has said, if you have no idea what you'd say in your death, you probably haven't a clue how to live your life or to live your life very well. Uh, I was watching TV last night, and uh, uh, there was a little report about a, a jetliner that crashed, and two sisters were reflecting about their parents who were on their way to Hawaii for one of their anniversaries, and they just got a phone call, and they said, we're just going to cut to the chase. The plane went down, and your parents are gone. And they said it was just so odd, just to, that was it. They couldn't say anything to them, and they couldn't say anything back to us. It was just, the plane went down, your parents are gone. Here, we have a different sort of thing, that David can actually open up his heart 
and inspired by the Lord, uh, communicate to an heir uh, some important and vital truths. Uh, my dad, a week before he died, was, it was a Christmas card because he died right after Christmas. Uh, this is 20 years ago. And uh, he just wrote some, it was really short, but what he wrote was just precious. And I, I just play it over in my head a lot. And uh, just a, a beautiful scene here that uh, David could reach out. Uh, Philip Reitkin on this verse, one good way to get ready to die is to think ahead to our dying words. What testimony will you give to your friends and family? Uh, so really, essentially, what David is saying first is saying, son, put God first in your life. There's a lot of things he could talk about, right? I mean, there's a kingdom, there's a palace, there's treasures, there's foreign policies and royal protocols, there's wealth management, um, there's a palace to build, right? It's going to take him seven years to do that, Solomon. Uh, but let's talk about your soul, number one. That's the most important, because if you get that right, everything else will unfold correctly and fall into place. Where did we hear that before? With Jesus. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first God's kingdom, and then all these other things will fall into their place. Now, the line there, I am about to go the way of all the earth, um, translated, paraphrased, I'm about to take the trip that everyone on earth must eventually make, whether they like it or not. Amen? Now, uh, of course, Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 51 says, listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to die. There's going to be a trumpet sound. And we who are alive at that coming of the Lord shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So not all of us will go the way of the earth. There's a small sliver that will go another way called the rapture. It's exciting, amen? amen? The blessed hope. Hello, it's exciting, amen? amen. Yeah, oh, there you are. <laughs> it was like, yeah, we're excited. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> put God first in your life. Uh, he says, now I'm going the way that everybody's got to go. And uh, David wants Solomon like any good dad, I would hope, to at the end of Solomon's life, so Solomon be able to say, look back with no regrets, with a heart right with God, a conscience that's clean, and like Jesus in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, say these words, I have glorified you on earth, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. That is what we want to say. I, I've, give, I've done my best to complete what you put me here to do. And so David's words, we better jump into it. He says, be strong, and, and essentially says, man up. That's what he says. Now, uh, New King, King James Version puts it this way. Prove yourself a man. Um, the NIV 2011 puts it, act like a man. The Darby translation, be a man. Well, show yourself a man. Uh, Walking with God is not for the faint of heart. And so what does he mean by, first of all, he looks at him and says, take some, 
be a man. Wow, I mean, that question, what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out what David, who I would think is the manliest man in this room, and probably that ever lived, the stud muffin of the universe, all right? He, he, this is a guy who was really good looking, right? Uh, he had a harem. I mean, he was a warrior king. He was wealthy. He was a man's man as far as uh, men of the world uh, define that. And he is going to say, be a man, but instead of saying anything I just mentioned, he's going to talk about walking with God. And he says, when you walk with God and you obey his commands, that is showing yourself to be a true, courageous man. What? It's not successful career or uh, romantic conquests or athletic prowess or uh, financial independence. Think of whatever you want in your mind that you define uh, masculinity or manhood. Uh, according to David, uh, he says, obedience to the word of God, doing what God requires and walking with him. In other words, there's an inner warrior that is really showing himself or herself true to God. And when we live that way, uh, we are, if we're speaking of men, truly men. Now, there's a, a speaker who's a pre pretty manly kind of guy. He's got a very deep voice. And, you know, he looks like the, the brawny man, you know, in the commercials with the, the beard and the flannel shirt. And, the, and he's a Christian speaker. And uh, he's been known to, to kind of be a little bit offensive because he talks about men needing to man up in, in ways that we think, like uh, needing to go out and split wood or uh, spend some time underneath the car fixing engines and that kind of thing. And people who hear him often, I kind of get what he was saying there. But when people hear him, they, they take offense because that's not really what we know to be true about what makes a man a man. Um, Closing your mouth when you want to say something rude or to retaliate. Uh, abstaining from sin when every fiber in your body wants to embrace it. Um, to tell yourself no. To deny yourself, pick up cross and follow. Uh, to serve others instead of being served. All of these qualities, uh, really, one writer said, it's the ability to be a knight in shining armor who slays the beast within for the love of king, uh, for the love of your king. So he, he uses five different terms to describe uh, the scriptures. He says, walk in his ways. That means live in a, in a holy way, separate from the world. Uh, he says, obey the decrees and commands there in verse three. That means to obey moral guidelines, to stay in the boundaries of the gospel and and God's word and truth. Then it says to keep, he says, keep God's laws and requirements. That means that to live a biblical lifestyle, there's not one area in life that the Bible doesn't address. And so he's saying, if you live by the book, you'll have God's blessing. And if you don't, you won't. Uh, now, verse four, he, I just picture him really taking a hold of him and looking into his eyes and say, saying, son, God has made me and our family some wonderful promises. Don't mess it up because uh, 
Our obedience will dictate how he keeps his promise in that regard. You keep God's word and he'll keep his. That's what the Bible says. Now brace yourself, we're gonna continue, but we're gonna go from a spiritual, warm, fuzzy kind of talk, love God, keep his commandments, to kind of uh, down and dirty practical matters. And this gets a lot of ink in commentaries because it just will blow you out of the water because suddenly, what? Here we go. Verse five. Now you yourselves know, you yourselves know what Joab, you yourself rather know what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether, He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword, but now do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. All right, David, tell us how you really feel about that guy. All right, verse 10. Then David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, which is Jerusalem. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven years over Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. Okay, so we're on the second part of David's last will and testament, all right? So part one was guard your heart, if you're taking notes. Part two would be guard the kingdom. Now, this will all make a little bit more sense if you're thinking of it in terms of he, uh, David wants Solomon to eliminate liabilities that will come up and destroy Solomon and God's work there in the kingdom of Israel. So really he's saying, son, I left some nasty, unfinished business, things I should have done, things, justice that should have prevailed. It did not go that way. Uh, But these things are gonna come up and they can bite you, they can threaten you and take down Israel. So first to the liabilities, there are two very dangerous men that you're gonna have to deal with. Number one, you're gonna have to eliminate Joab. Now, Joab has already committed a capital offense according to God's law, twice over, in cold blood, premeditated murder. And by the law, he should have been put to death a long time ago. And so uh, Joab is a mixed bag, isn't he? I mean, sometimes you really liked him. I mean, because he's so loyal sometimes, but he's only loyal to David when it kind of... suits his interest, right? Because he's a guy who just kind of is a hothead and you wrong him and he'll just as soon as just kill you right there as look at you. So 
Recently, he kind of uh, united with Adonijah to overthrow Solomon and David. So we already know not only is he a cold-blooded killer, but he's against David, and he's against the Lord, and he's against Solomon. So as he lay dying, he's saying, hey, Joab's out there, kid. He is going to be trouble. He's going to take you down and the kingdom of Israel. And he's already, God had already put it on David's heart that justice needed to happen. For those two boys, he killed Abner, a revenge killing. You'll remember back in 2 Samuel 2. And he killed Amasa. Uh, David fired uh, Joab. There's a lot of names here. (laughs) David fired Joab for killing Absalom. His son, he said, don't kill him. I know he's trying to kill us, but he's my boy for crying out loud. Do not kill him. And Joab said, yeah, we're not going to kill him. Yeah, we, so he killed him. He said, you know what? You're fired. This isn't working. And he put Amasa in his place. So Joab gets jealous of Amasa and says, hey, brother, cousin, they're cousins. Hey, cuz, what's up? And he grabs him by the beard, and he pulls him in to give him one of those Mediterranean air kisses. But oh, he got a lot more than that. He got a shiv. And he disemboweled him. So, you know, my sympathy card just got torn up. I'm sorry, Joab. You know what? Yeah, so we're going to see how that goes down later in the chapter. Bad boy number two uh, is Shimei. So verses 8 and 9, he's Saul's relative. He's the dude who was pelting David at David's lowest as he's fleeing from Absalom up the Mount of Olives with his friends and family and their supporters. They're hungry. They're tired. They're dirty. They're just feeling like we're going to be killed here. And this guy goes, go out, go out of town, you murderer, you beast. God has done this for you. You know, and you'll remember the story He said, look, when we came back victorious, he's talking to his boy. I showed him mercy. I told him, look, I'm not going to put you to death today because I'm really happy about coming back to the palace. So you're going to go off scot-free. But son, watch out for him. He's trouble. He didn't say kill him necessarily. He said, you're smart. You're a smart guy. You'll know what to do. Put him under surveillance. Keep your eye on him because he has a tendency to divide the kingdom in that little tender area, the north-south thing. He's always for the north, so watch out for him. Now, happily, it's not just about eliminating your liabilities that David's talking about. He's saying, how about establishing some assets? And so he's going to talk about strengths like Barzillai and his sons. Now, you'll recall in 2 Samuel 17 that Barzillai was that 80-year-old man. Here's David in the same situation, dirty and tired and exhausted, running for their lives. And this old guy comes down. They're coming on their way back now. This old man comes down 20 miles. He's very wealthy. He's 80 years old. And he said, my lord, my king, I've brought food, bedding, tents, a whole caravan of stuff. David said, you're coming with me, old man, You're going to live in a palace and eat at the king's table every night for the rest of your life. He said, what? I'm 80 years old. How many years do I have? I can't even taste the food you're going to put in front of me. That's what he says. He said, but I got this kid here, Kimham. And he says, yeah, I'll take him. And so David is saying to Solomon, 
all the boys, I want those boys at the table, and I want their boys at the table. What does it say that of uh, touching David's heart, a king's heart, in such a way that the king wants to bless not only the sons, but every, everybody with your last name forever. That's what he wants to do. It's just an amazing thing. He says, really what he's saying, spiritual application, surround yourself with encouragers. Surround yourselves with people who, who love you and are loyal to you and will lift you up. What's wrong with that? And what's the best way to do that? Become a person like that. Amen? Okay. You're just quiet. That's all. I just need a little more zip tonight. I'm tired as you are. All right? So eliminate threats. Establish assets. Minimize the Eeyores in your life. All right? You know what an Eeyore is. The donkey says, we're all going to die. All right? Uh, maximize your Barnabases. I guess you could say Barnaby. I don't know. Barnabases. <laughs> Multiple Barnabases. Barnabas is always seen. He's seen about 12 times in the New Testament. Every time you read it, his name, he's helping someone. Uh, his original name, birth name was Joseph in the book of Acts, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So they just said, well, uh, we know you're Joseph, but we want to call you Barney because you're... Yeah, those are the kinds of people you want to hang out with. Amen. Not Barney the dinosaur, all right? He doesn't wear purple. So, uh, you know, this whole thing has a spiritual application already. Can I let you know what it is? Because you would think, what could be smarter or wiser than eliminate threats? Listen to what he's saying to his son on his deathbed. Eliminate the threats and establish your assets. As sinners, we keep... uh, We keep our liabilities around us, and we dump the very things that can establish and encourage us. So it's not as easy as you think. One quote, and then we'll move on. There are threats to Christ's kingdom and his work in us all around us. The spiritual application of David's final words to the Christian is to have zero tolerance for relationships, situations, or things that can destroy God's work in and through us. If there is a person who will take you away from Jesus, if there is a situation that will cause you to abandon your walk, if there's a book that's going to create more questions than answers and stumble your faith, if there's a Joab thing lurking in the dark that you should have dealt with a long while ago and it threatens to undo everything God has done in you, Take David's advice and bring its nasty head down to the grave. Amen? Amen. Oh, you're getting a little better. (laughs) All right, so David died. First Chronicles 29 says, full of days, a rich life, wealthy and with honor. And how is that possible with all his mistakes? He made peace with God. And the blood of Jesus cleanses him from all sins. Verse 13, now we're going to see that Adonijah can't help himself. He's been spared from death, remember? He's crying, don't kill me, don't kill me, I'm clinging to the altar. And what did did his brother say? Live a worthy life, don't cause any trouble, and you will. So here he is. This is his definition of not causing any trouble. All right, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, 
goes to Bathsheba, the one who told on him in the first place, <laughs> Solomon's mother. Bathsheba asked him, rightfully, do you come peacefully? Yeah, because she's in trouble with him because, because of her. He answered, yes, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may speak, she replied. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king. But things changed. And the kingdom has gone to my brother. For it has come to him from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Don't refuse me. Go ahead, she says. So he continues. Please ask King Solomon. He won't refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. Y'all remember Abishag is Miss Israel? Remember they did a, did a beauty search for a concubine, a wife for King David in his old age to care for him. Whoever inherited the harem or the wives made a case for being king. So what he's really saying is, A, I'm in love with this beautiful woman. B, I want to be the king. So Adonijah's last move. So we've got David's last words and Adonijah's last try, shall we say. So he begins with bitter whining. You know, uh, Bathsheba, as I said, verse 13, knows she's in trouble. So she says, hey, are you here to kill me or what? You know, because she's nervous about that. And start the violins in your mind. As you well know, the throne, the glory, the fame, the wealth, the palace, the concubines were all like this close to me. I was just going to get it all. Everyone loved me and wanted me to be king. And look at how he describes how God intervened. But things changed. Yeah, they did. God gave you a smackdown, brother, you know? Sheesh. <laughs> so Adonijah seems to suffer from delusions of grandeur. He imagines that the widespread popular support uh, for him was in these hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, but notice they quickly deserted him as soon as, you know, David uh, was favored, uh, favoring Solomon, I should say. And so Adonijah's request is just another attempt to uh, get the king dumb. All right, so he says, listen, I may have lost that, but I'd like a consolation prize. Don't you think I've had this terrible setback, and all I want is that beautiful woman. So she happened to be in bed with my father, but you know what? I, I still want her anyway. So Bathsheba, she's smart. She's a smart gal. She's going to play this. She's thinking, okay, I'll tell, I'll tell Solomon exactly what you want, and then say exactly it the way you want me to say it, because she knows Solomon's a smart cookie. So, very well, Bathsheba says, verse 18, I'll speak to the king for you. When Bathsheba went to the king, uh, when Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak for Adonijah, his half-brother, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at the right hand. Wow. I have one small request to make of you, she said. Do not refuse me. The king replied, make it, my mother. I will not refuse you. Oh, she's happy now because she wants the bomb to go off. 
So she said, let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to marriage to your brother Adonijah. And she stepped back for the explosion. (laughs) King Solomon answered his mother, why would you request Abishag, the Shunammite, for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he's, he's my older brother. Yes, for him. And for Abiathar, the priest. These are all the traitors. And Joab, son of Zer- Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. Bathsheba's smiling. Uh, verse 24. And now, as surely as the Lord lives, he who has established me securely on the throne of my father David and has found, founded a dynasty for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah and died. Well, that's sad, but you know what's the saddest thing is, is that it didn't have to happen. He received mercy, and he violated the terms of his parole. Solomon said, if you prove yourself to be loyal, not a hair on your head will be touched. But if you make trouble, you will die. That's chapter 1, verse 52. So he does the right thing. So next threat, the buddy of Adonijah, verses 26 and 27. Now to Abiathar, the priest who linked up with Adonijah, uh, the king said, go back to your fields and wherever it is you lived. You deserve to die, but I will not put you to death now because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord before my father David and shared all my father's hardships. So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word of the Lord, at what the word of the Lord said at, about Shiloh there at the house of Eli. All right, so here's what he's saying. So Abiathar, if you're taking notes, number three, the priest's last ministry position, all right? Abiathar was the high priest who served really well for most of his life, and then at the end, he got jealous of the other high priest and uh, conspired with the bad boys. So Solomon's saying, look, you you do deserve to die, but you know what? I'm just going to remove you from the ministry position, Go back and have a secular job because your behavior has disqualified you from the ministry. That's really what's going on here. He wants to show mercy and wisdom. You know, he did a lot of good in his life. You were friends with my dad. You carried the ark of the Lord for crying out loud. I don't want to put you to death. You know, so by defrocking him in verse 27, defrocking means to excommunicate a priest, right? So verse 27 points out that that actually fulfills a 100-year-old prophecy that the Lord made about Eli's family because of Eli's bad behavior and Eli's sons that they would not no longer be the family of priests. A 100 years later, this is the last relative to go. So the Holy Spirit says it may take a 100 years, but the Lord always comes through <laughs> with his promises. All right, who's next? Can't wait to see. Verse 28. When the news reached Joab, (laughs) who had conspired with bad boy Adonijah, though not with Absalom. Yeah, he picked his sons, you know. He fled to the tent of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. Hmm, 
Where did we see this before? Verse 29, King Solomon was told that Joab had fled to the tent of the Lord and was beside the altar. Then Solomon ordered Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, go strike him down. So Benaiah entered the tent of the Lord into the tabernacle and said to Joab, the king says, come out. But he answered, no, I'll die here. Benaiah reported to the king, this is how Joab answered me. So he goes back and says, hey, he's clinging to the altar and he's saying he's going to die right there. Do I have to kill him right there in church and everything? And Solomon says, yeah, yes. Do exactly what he says. Strike him down and bury him. And so clear me and my father's house of the guilt of the innocent blood that Joab shed. Those two young men, you'll recall. Verse 32, the Lord will repay him for the blood he shed because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked two men and killed them with a sword, both of them, Abner, commander of Israel's army, and Amasa, son of Jether, commander of Judah's army, were better men and more upright than he. May the guilt of their blood rest on the head of Joab and his descendants forever, but on David and his descendants, his house and his throne, may there be the Lord's peace forever. So Benaiah, went up and struck down Joab and killed him. And he was buried on his own land in the desert. The king put Benaiah over the army in Joab's position and replaced Abiathar with Zadok. That's the dude he was jealous of the whole time, uh, the priest. So number four, uh, Joab's last moments. All right, so if you're taking notes, Joab's last moments. He gets the bad news, Joab does, and he puts it all together. So he takes the horns of the altar to imitate Adonijah. He thinks maybe it'll go well for him. Um, I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this passage, this part right here. He says, he did not know where to go except he fled to the horns of the altar, which he had very seldom approached before in life. As far as we can judge, he had shown little respect to the Lord during his lifetime. He was a rough man of war and cared little about God or the tabernacle or the priests or the altar. But of course, when he's in danger, he fled to that which he had avoided and sought to make a refuge of that which he had neglected in life. That's Charles Spurgeon. Now, you know, we all hope that he made peace with God at that altar you know, especially when he had so much time. He had time from the, from the moment that uh, the officer says, uh, Benaiah says, I'm going back and talking to the king. And then he comes back, he hears the footsteps. He can make peace with God. You know, and so hopefully that happened. Uh, I met a man on his deathbed at UCSF when I was being treated for uh, my bone marrow transplant uh, 11 years ago. I was talking to him. And he said, he told me, I'm very near death. They're just kind of keeping me comfortable. And I said, well, have you thought about the Lord? He said, I've, I've waged the battle against faith in God my whole life. So I'm not about to give in now. I said, he said, that would be hypocrisy. And I corrected him. I said, no, sir, that would be wisdom. <laughs> I said, God doesn't mind at the last second, the, the, the thief on the cross. He had moments to spare. I said, that would be a smart thing. You just change your mind and humble yourself. He got red-faced and very angry, did not want to talk anymore. And I said, you know, sir, 
Eternity is a long time. And I just left him with those words. It's okay at the last minute. You know, some of us don't get a two-minute warning that goes off in our heads. You know, you got two minutes, you better make peace with God. Uh, But if you do get the two minutes and you haven't lived your whole life for God, there's nothing wrong with being smart and uh, taking him up on his offer. Amen? Amen. I highly suggest you do it way before that, but I'm just (laughs) saying. All right. So he says, go strike him down. Oh, by the way, here's what it says in Exodus 21 about giving sanctuary to people clinging to the horns of the altar. They could get sanctuary if it was unintentional manslaughter. But here's what the word of God says. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. Exodus 21 and verse 14. So he had no right to the altar. Uh, Let's finish up. I'm sure there's one more person that needs to go. (laughs) Verse 36 through 46. Then the king sent for Shimei and said to him, all right, this is a good one. Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there. It's about really one square mile. Not very big back in the day. Uh, but don't go anywhere else, because the day you leave and cross the Kidron Valley, you can be sure you will die, and your blood will be on your own head. So Shimei answers the king, hey, that sounds good to me. Your servant will do as my lord the king has said. And Shimei stayed in Jerusalem for a long time. But three years later, two of Shimei's slaves ran off to Achish, son of Makkah, king of Gath, And Shimei was told, your slaves are in Gath. Hmm. At this, he saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath in search of his slaves. So Shimei went away and brought the slaves back to Gath. When Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had returned, the king summoned Shimei and said to him, did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you? On the day you leave to go anywhere else, you can be sure you will die. And at that time, didn't you say to me, sounds good to me, I will obey? Why then did you not keep your oath to the Lord and obey the command I gave you? The king said to Shimei, you know in your heart all the wrong you did to my father David. Now the Lord will repay you for for your wrongdoing. But King Solomon will be blessed, and David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. Then the king gave the order to Benaiah. There's that man again. He's the new hit man. (laughs) And he went out and struck Shimei down and killed him. The kingdom was now firmly established in Solomon's hands. So if you're taking notes, the last one, number five, Shimei's last trip abroad. All right? (laughs) So we had David's last words, number one. Number two, Adonijah's last try. Number three, Abiathar's last worship service. And number four, Joab's last moments. And number five, Shimei's last trip abroad. So he brings in this guy, and he says, listen, you're you're guilty enough to die, but let's, let's let the Lord be the judge of it. 
Let's see how the Lord deals with this. I'm going to give you an opportunity. So uh, you stay where we can keep an eye on you because you're, you're a troublemaker. And uh, if you stay within the confines of, of Jerusalem, you're going to live. The day you cross the Kidron Valley, you die. Does that sound good? That sounds good. Now, what is it that caused Shimei to risk his life to cross the Kidron Valley? Oh, by the way, he didn't cross the Kidron Valley. He went the other way, just so you know. So he's thinking in his mind, I didn't really cross the Kidron Valley. You know, I, I left Jerusalem, but I didn't go exactly what he said. Anyway, what caused him to risk his life? It's about money. It's my possessions, my stuff. I'm going to lose money. Now, that, that, the commentators say, everybody's got boundaries, and the Lord has placed us all within the Kidron Valley. And he says, you know, uh, the day you cross there, you transgress. You lose everything when you go across where the Lord, the king, has said, this is, these are the parameters, man. You know? So what is it for you that would cause you to, 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 to kind of uh, ignore your own instinct for self-preservation and go after the thing that beckons you. So, you know, for Adonijah, it was uh, maybe sexual gratification with Abishag. Uh, everybody has something. Or he wants to be the guy on the throne. So for him, it was worth the second try even though he, he could have lived, Adonijah could have lived, but he, couldn't, he didn't have the Holy Spirit to regenerate his heart and to help him to say no to his impulse to want to be the king, to go after his lust of Abishag, uh, the jealousy thing. Everybody has a thing. Uh, Abiathar, I can't get over my jealousy. Joab, I want to do things my way, not God's way. And now Shimei, I value money and possessions more than my own life. David's words now make a lot more sense if you read them at the end of seeing everybody destroy themselves because they don't follow David's words. And here's David's words one more time. Take courage and be a man. Stay put. Stay in the boundaries. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep each of the laws, commands, regulations written in the word of God so that you will be successful and blessed and prosperous in all you do and wherever you go. That's the lesson. The lesson of the chapter is when you don't do that, this is what happens, death and destruction. Okay, here we go with the one-minute Reflections. One minute takeaway that I've gotten from this chapter. Number one, David's last words. Live a biblical life and be blessed. Number two, Adonijah's last try. Rebellion against the king always ends in disaster. Number three, Abiathar's last ministry position. Bad behavior disqualifies you from ministry positions. Number four, Joab's last moments. Great accomplishments in life without faith in God is meaningless. And number five, Shimei's last little trip. 
stepping over boundaries the king has put us in must be obeyed if crossed one does so at one's own risk. Amen? All right, we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kingdom moving forward through Solomon and through um, the kingdom that you have in place that can never be thwarted. And thank you, Lord, that as David ended his life, so too those who rebel against the king are brought to an end. And the newness of life comes when people obey and submit themselves to your rule and your good blessing. That's what we want to do, Lord. Help us to take David's final words, the psalm, into heart so that we could be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, the most positive thing for us tonight is these same sinful tendencies that ruined all these lives exist in our own evil hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure who can know it, Jeremiah 17, 9, right? However, we have the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside us, and that's the gospel that says you finally have the power to resist. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you shall have life and peace. So it's just a wonderful confidence and peace of mind. No, we have the tools. We've got the same promptings. We've got the same nasty inclinations. But we have the ability to keep God's command. The same God who commands is the God who enables. So we call on his name. We repent of our sins. We ask for the fullness of God's spirit. And we read the word. We keep our eyes on Christ and our knees on the ground and our feet ready to serve him. And we overcome. That's the good word. That's the good news. Let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you that the lust for power, the sexual uh, desires for gratification outside of the boundaries of marriage, jealousy, uh, self-determination, money, all of these things can have no hold over us and that we can use these things as you have intended them to be used for blessing. We ask, Father, for the grace to be able to cooperate with the Holy Spirit so that we could die to the things that bring death and destruction and live to your spirit in obedience to your word. Help us with the lesson tonight from this chapter to apply it in our hearts and lives and be blessed and to live and to enjoy life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, and don't forget about prayer at the cross. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.